I'd like to invite your attention to the 16th chapter of Matthew, and we will read just one verse, verse 18. Jesus is speaking, and he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, and here's the important part for us this morning, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is the dearest place on earth. Nothing in the world is dearer to God's heart than His church. Therefore, being His, let us also belong to it, that by our prayers, our gifts, and our labors, we may support and strengthen it. If those who are Christ refrained, even for a generation, from numbering themselves with His people, there would be no visible church, no ordinances maintained, and I fear very little preaching of the gospel. Those are the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And I wonder if his sentiment towards the church is your sentiment towards the church. Is the church the dearest place on earth to you? And if it isn't, why not? So this morning, we're going to take this week and next week as part of our basics of the Christian life. We're going to take this week and next week to study the church. What does the Bible say about the church? And why take time to study the church? And really, the, the reality is the answer to that question could honestly be a, a whole series of messages. But let me suggest some theological reasons as well as some practical reasons for studying the church and seeking to gain an understanding of the church. First and foremost, we should take the time to study the church and apply ourselves to understanding the nature of the church because Christ died for the church. It's probably the only reason we need to give. We should take the time to study the church because the church is special to God. We should take the time to study the church because the church is central in God's purposes. So we might say that those are three theological reasons as to why we should study the church. Now let me give you three practical reasons. We should take the time to study the church because of the confusion that surrounds the nature of the church. I don't know if we've lived in a more confused time about the nature and the purpose and the functioning of the church as we live in today. Perhaps there's been other times, but certainly we see a great deal of it today. We should take the time to study the church because the confusion surrounding the importance of the church and specifically the local church. And then thirdly, we should take the time to study the church because the self-centeredness and the rampant individualism that characterizes our culture today, both of those things which are detrimental to our lives as believers. I read this quote this week, uh, and, and I thought it really hit the mark. Membership, this isn't a quote, but th this is just a comment. Membership in a local church provides the much-needed antidote to those twin ills of self-centeredness and individualism. That's one of the purposes of the church. And here's the quote, the doctrine of the church can deliver us from individualism, 
from the idea that Christianity can all somehow be reduced or concentrated to fit into my experience, my personal relationship with God. As important as that relationship is, now pay close attention here. God has something much larger in mind. All of God's ways move towards the end of establishing the people of God, who He has called out from the world to be set aside as His. That last part of that quote is so important. The church is made up, is comprised by the people of God. And the people of God are those whom God has called out of the world and He has set aside as His. Just that very fact alone should help us place a great level of importance on the church. Why? Because not everybody is called out of the world and into God's church. Now, we don't look at this as a source of pride, but a source of blessing. And we are humbled by the fact that God has done for us what he has not done for others. While at the same time, we pray that God would what? Do that for others. And we work to see that God would do that for others. But the church is a called out group of people called out of the sinful world, called out of death into life. So let me try and connect this with our text this morning. Because in our text, Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell will not or shall not prevail against it. There there are at least three truths here. And let me give them to you rather briefly. The first is, in the Lord's words, we learn that the church belongs to Jesus. That is a monumental truth. Jesus said he would build his church. The church is personal to Jesus. And what are the implications of our Lord's words? Well, one of the implications certainly is this, that Jesus owns the church. Say, well, I never thought of it in those terms. But that's the reality. Jesus owns the church. The church doesn't belong to the elders or the pastors or the people or the congregation of the church. The church belongs to Christ. Now, I understand sometimes what people mean when they say this. Many times people will say to me when they're talking about our church, they'll refer to it as being my church, like, you know, it's my church, like my, my name's on the corporation papers someplace, and I founded it and started it. And it no, th- this is not my church. It's really not even the, your church as a congregation. It's the Lord's church. It's His church. If we want to use a business analogy, we would say that Jesus is a, the sole proprietor of the church. The church belongs to Jesus. The church is the unique possession of God. In the words of Spurgeon, again, the church is the dearest place on earth. And this is the reality that sets the church apart from every other earthly organization. That's why you frequently read in the Scriptures the phrases, the church of God or the church of Christ. That's not referring to denominations. That's referring to the ownership of the church. It's God's church. It's the, the church of Christ. And those two phrases are absolutely 100% accurate. The church belongs to Jesus. Jesus owns the church, which means 
that Jesus and Jesus alone has the right to determine how the church is to function and who is to be admitted to the church. Okay? And I'll deal with that probably more next week than this week. Second, Jesus said he would build his church. So what does Jesus use to build his church? Well, the building blocks of the church are all those whom God has sovereignly called to faith in Christ. In other words, believers. Believers are the building blocks of the church. We see this analogy in the Bible. Paul reminded the church at Ephesus, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Peter, uh, likewise, Peter reminds us that every believer is a living stone that makes the church a spiritual house. 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson has a wonderful book that I would encourage you all to read. Um, Devoted to God's Church, I think it's the name of it. It's, a, it's one of his newer books. But he has this statement in there. Uh, he said, in light of this, every believer should pray, Jesus, keep me from becoming a roadblock. So we either contribute to the building of the church or we contribute to what? Blocking the building of the church. Thirdly, Jesus said he would protect his church. Now, why would Jesus say that? Because he knows, he understands that the church would come under attack. From the moment the church was launched, it came under attack. So he gives us this promise that as the church is being built, the forward progress of the church can never be stopped. Jesus promises us that despite the best intentions of our enemy, the church will continue to be built throughout time. What have we seen in China? The government shut down the church, outlawed the church. The church went underground. And what happened? Did it die? No, it grew. It became stronger. You know, if I were ever to take a trip overseas, which is highly doubtful, one thing I would like to do, I would like to visit some of the magnificent cathedrals that dot the landscape of Europe. And many of those cathedrals, whether we realize it or not, many of them took over a century to build. Some took centuries to build. Uh, I did a little research this week and found that the, the Cologne Cathedral, I, I hope I'm saying that right, took 640 years to build. That's a long time. That meant year after year, decade after decade, century after century, brick after brick, that cathedral was built. You know, that's a picture of what Jesus is doing. Year after year, decade after decade, century after century, and brick by brick, Jesus continues to build his church, and he will continue to build his church, and nothing can stop it, and nothing can destroy it. As one theologian said, no matter how legalistic or apostate, its outward adherence may be, and no matter how decadent or hostile the rest of the church may become, 
uh, the, the hostile the rest of the world may become, Christ has promised that he will build his church. Though their outward circumstances may seem hopeless or impossible from a human perspective, God's people belong to a cause that cannot fail. You're not on a sinking ship. You're not in a hopeless situation. You don't ever have to fear of the church becoming extinct. Why? Jesus has promised to build his church. He's promised to protect his church. He's looking out for his church. So we take all three of those statements together. We combine them, and they lead us to this one conclusion. When Jesus said that he would build my church, because Jesus said he would build his church and he would protect his, his church, there's only one conclusion, and that is this, that the church is supremely important to Jesus. And if the church is important to Jesus, then the church should be important to all who profess Christ as Lord and Savior. Can I get an amen? Thank you. So what I want to do this morning is I want to address the relationship that you as a Christian should have to the church. And just for clarification, I'm using the church in the sense of the local church. Yes, there is the universal church, but I'm addressing the local church. I'm addressing the church at 138 Mary Street, Berea, Kentucky, 40403. I'm addressing the church that meets at this location. But before I can address uh, your relationship to the church, I need to make sure that we're all on the same page as to the nature of the church. Or, or what, what exactly is the church? Now, I, I don't want to get into theological deep weeds here. So I'm just going to use three pictures or images that we see in the New Testament that help us understand exactly what the church is. Jeffrey Johnson, another book that I would recommend to you, he wrote a, it's a small book and simply titled The Church. And this was his opening words of chapter 1. He said, what is the church? Are Christians required to join themselves to a local church? What are the privileges and responsibilities of church membership? What is the authority of the church? What is church discipline and how is the church to be governed? What is the purpose of the church? What are the activities of the church? How should the church express its worship? The answers to these important questions should not be left to one's opinion or their pragmatic or relativistic ideas, but yielded from the sure foundation of God's written word. So all that he is saying here is, remember, the church belongs to Jesus. Jesus is the owner of the church. And because Jesus owns the church, his ownership demands that we function as a church according to the guidelines set out in Scripture. Now, you probably don't come up to this like I do because of my role as a pastor. I've seen way too many videos on YouTube. There's one guy in Lexington who said that he's out to redefine the church. Redefine worship. Arrogant. Arrogant or misinformed? Arrogant or ignorant? I don't know. But either way, you don't have the right. 
That's not your prerogative. It's not your church. Go start your social club and do whatever you want, but please don't call it a church. Jesus owns the church. And so we look to Scripture in order to understand not only what the church is, but how the church is to function. So let me give you three images from the New Testament. First of all, the church is a fellowship. It's a fellowship. But it is a very particular and a very specific kind of fellowship. It's a fellowship that is only made up of God's people. It's a fellowship that has been made up of people who have been spiritually united together through their faith in Christ. And because they have been spiritually united together, the Bible says that they are to frequently and regularly assemble together. Hebrews 10.25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, because we are in Christ, we've been united together through faith in Christ, that means that we should, on a regular basis, assemble together. Now, you're intelligent people, so let's think this through for just a moment. Again, I'm referring to Jeffrey Johnson. He writes, those who have fellowship and communion with Christ, now listen carefully to what he says, those who have fellowship and communion with Christ cannot help but have fellowship and communion with each other. It is the soul's invisible unity with the invisible Christ that compels believers who live in a physical body to outwardly unite in a visible and local assembly. What he's saying is it's natural for God's people to want to be together. It's natural. It's unnatural for God's people to not want to be together. And I realize we live in extraordinary times and it's not possible for everybody to be together. But I hope, I hope and pray, my prayer is you don't like it if you can't be here. It's not natural for you to profess Christ as Lord and Savior and not want to be with God's people. It's not natural. It's not natural. And this is one of the defining marks of the church. A church consists of a group of people who have ongoing fellowship and communion with Christ. And out of that ongoing fellowship and communion with Christ, we want to have ongoing fellowship and communion with each other. The Puritan Benjamin Keach said, A church is a congregation of godly Christians who as a stated assembly do by mutual agreement and consent give themselves up to the Lord and one another according to the will of God, and do ordinarily meet together in one place. Have you ever asked yourself this question, do I really need the church? And, and I think a lot of people during this time, they are asking that question, but they're coming to the wrong answer. They're coming to the wrong conclusion. Say, so why are they coming to the wrong conclusion? Because they do not understand the nature or the purpose of the church. If the church is presented as just any kind of other earthly organization, if the church is presented as some kind of a do-gooders club, if the church is, you know, let's all just get together and do whatever we want and kind of salve our conscience or we can go about and do whatever we want for the rest of the week, well, sure, I'd sit back during this time and say, well, you know what? It's been nine, ten months since I've been to church. Do I really need the church? And by the way, again, you wouldn't care about these things, but the number of people watching online has dropped precipitously. 
What does that mean? They don't really think they need the church. So do I really need the church? The short but very definitive answer is yes. Yes. You say, why? Well, every believer needs the church because God has designed us as Christians in such a way that we are interdependent. Not independent, but interdependent. In other words, we need each other. As a Christian, I cannot function properly alone or in isolation. Do you know what a sprocket on a bike needs? A chain. A chain. What's a bike without a chain? A lawn ornament. It's pretty much useless. You can pedal for hours, but you'll never move an inch. It's kind of like an exercise bike. You know, this is a good time of year to talk about exercise bikes. Good time to talk about them, not do anything about them, but talk about them. People can get on there and they pedal, 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 and they work up a great big sweat. And where have they gone? Nowhere. They're still in front of the TV or in the bedroom, ready to hang the clothes back up on it in a week or two. They've not gone anywhere. Likewise, a Christian without a church can have lots of activity, yet despite their activity, they accomplish very little. What I mean by that is they make very little progress in sanctification. Why? There's no accountability. There's no accountability to online church, is there? You know, you can hit play and walk away. Right? Poor video guy at church think, oh, they're watching. Are they? You don't know, do you? Let me illustrate this about sanctification in the church. This will happen to you if you go to church any length of time. You come to church and someone rubs you the wrong way. Has that happened? Oh, come on now. Someone sins against you. Let's just put it out there. Someone sins against you. So you have a couple of options. This is America. Amen. I have rights. I can do whatever I want to do. Well, remember now, you're a citizen of God's kingdom. You, you signed an agreement to be loyal and faithful to your local church. That's what that covenant means. So you really don't have a whole lot of options, but people take options that they don't have sometimes. So what are the two options? Well, one option is this is what many people do. Someone rubs them the wrong way, looks at them cross-eyed, whatever the case may be. It may be a real slight. It may be a real offense. And what do they do? They leave. They leave. And if you do that, you miss out on the opportunity that God has allowed to take place in your life to help you grow in grace. This is what, this is what you can't get people to understand about being a part of the church. We're going to look this morning at how church is a family and, and families have problems. And sadly, 
The way that many people's families deal with problems is the way that people deal with problems in a church. They leave. They bug out. No more contact. Cut you off. I'll unfriend you on Facebook. I'll del- delete you off whatever the, the tweeting thing is. I, I, I'll do whatever I can do. Right? That's our natural reaction. That's what we want to do. But another option, and the best option, is staying and applying the healing power of the gospel to that situation. And what happens there? You grow in grace, and God is glorified. God is not glorified when we bug out on him. I wish we could get individual believers to see that. That's what the world does. You don't like your boss, you quit. You don't like your wife, you divorce her. You don't like your church, you don't like what happened, you don't like what somebody said, I'm out of here. And see, what does that attitude display? It displays, it displays a very selfish attitude like you think the church exists to meet every one of your needs. Didn't we see last week the church exists to do what? To worship God. You're here to experience God. And one of the ways, listen, I, I get it. We want to experience God and feel good at the same time. But sometimes you have to experience God while you're feeling bad. And frankly, my experience has been my experiencing of God in the bad times is much sweeter than my experiencing of Him in the good times. Remember, God has designed his church as a body in which every part is necessary. And again, this strikes directly at our desire to be independent. The reality is, as Christians, we are all codependents. I don't don't normally like that term. But in the church, there's some truth to that. As believers, we are not to try and go it alone. Every member of the church is necessary in order for the church to function properly. I need Emily's gift. I need Emily's gift to benefit me. I need John's gift to benefit me. I need Karina's gift to benefit me. I need Jeff's gift to benefit me. I need Dustin's gift to benefit me. Two Rachel's gifts to benefit me. And hopefully you get some benefit from my gift. That's the way that God has designed the church. And because the fellowship of the church centers on Christ... The church should be distinct from the surrounding culture. Paul begins his first letter to the church of Corinth by saying, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So what Paul's saying here is that all Christians have been called by God and set apart by God for God's special purposes. Now, notice that Paul identifies a couple of important characteristics of those who make up the church. First, they have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. In other words, they're holy people. And then he says, second, they have called to be saints. What does all that point us to? It points us to the reality that we are to be different and distinct from the culture around us. And through the work of God in our lives, we are different from the culture. We do have different priorities. We do have different lifestyles. We do have different priorities. Why? Because we've been called out into a unique fellowship. 
But not only are we a unique fellowship, the Bible says that we are the people of God. 1 Peter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, once you were spiritually dead, once you were on the outside, you were not a part of God's covenant, but now you are a people. You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Likewise, Paul wrote to the church at Rome, as indeed he says in, in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in every place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Again, do you see what a tremendous privilege it is to be a part of God's church? Notice that both Peter and Paul say that all believers are Christians, are the people of God, not the peoples of God. God, through Jesus Christ, is bringing together people from all different countries and nationalities, different social levels, educational levels. He's bringing them all together to make them a single people, His people. So the church is pictured as the people of God. You know, again, you won't care about this, but it went, made the rounds in prior years where the church growth experts, whoever they are, said if you want to grow your church large and you want to grow your church fast, you need to have a laser-like focus on a particular group of people. And scores of churches bought into that. So all of a sudden we had churches popping up for bikers. There was a church in my hometown called Church in the Wind. You know what it was for? For bikers. For bikers. Church in the Wind. We had churches popping up for cowboys. We had, of course, we had churches popping up for the yuppies, the up-and-comers, the do-gooders of the world. But you know what church I never saw pop up? The church that targeted the down and outers. Yet that's the people that God tells us to go out into the highways and hedges and do what? Compel them to come in. Oh, you can't build much of a church with the down and outers. Well, God's building his kingdom with down and outers. And aren't you glad? Remember, the church is the people of God, not the peoples of God. Thirdly, the third picture is, the church is pictured as the family of God. And this is probably the most basic picture of the church in the New Testament. God's family is made up of those who have been given new life by the Holy Spirit. God's family is made up of those who have been brought to see their need for Christ. And the Holy Spirit has granted them repentance towards God for their sin and faith in Christ for forgiveness of their sins and salvation in His name. Sinclair Ferguson takes this a step further and says, family, I wish you all would write this down, remember this, think about this. Family is what the church is. Family is what the church is. I dare say every week Ben addresses the congregation as what? Family. Why? Because that is what the church is. Sinclair Ferguson goes on to say, in fact, from one point of view, the church is so central to the New Testament's vision of the Christian life 
that in some senses it is even more basic than the most basic of these other spheres, i.e. family life. And he points to Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, where Jesus said, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Those aren't Sinclair's words. Those aren't my words. Those are the, Lord, the Lord's words. Jesus makes it plain and clear that because he is Lord, that he is Savior, that he is sovereign, that he's the giver and sustainer of life, he is to be the priority. And if we do not make him the priority, this is what Jesus says, you're not worthy of me. Again, that sounds so radical to us. But that's what Jesus said. Ferguson goes on to say, here Jesus sets our ultimate priorities. He comes first. If that is the case, now listen carefully. Go home and debate this. If that is the case, then his family has a certain kind of priority over my own family. If push comes to shove, Christ and his people come first. Do we believe that? Do we operate that way? Do we have that kind of priority? You know, I have a brother and a sister. I see you all a whole lot more than I see them. Say, well, you make us a priority because you're paid to. Well, I hope that's not the case. Does the church, the people of God, the fellowship of God, the family of God, do they have that kind of priority in your life? Do they hold that kind of exalted position in your life? And I mentioned this in prayer meeting, because the church is the family of God, we have the privilege of calling God our Father. Now think about that. Before we were brought into the family of God, we didn't have the right to call God our Father, to acknowledge God as our Father. But now that we are a part of God's family, we have the right, the privilege to call God our Father. And again, I wonder how much time do we really spend meditating on that truth, thinking about that truth. Listen, growing up, you may have had a rotten father. Don't bring that in to your heavenly father. Do not project the failings of your earthly father onto your heavenly father. Heavenly Father loves you more than you and I can begin to comprehend. Your Heavenly Father always, always, always has your best interest at heart. Always. And if we do not take advantage of the right that we have, as God is our Father, and the privilege that we have as God is our Father, we really dishonor Him. If we look to anything or anyone else when we should be looking to Him, we dishonor Him. We don't bring glory to Him. 
And again, the Father always desires the best for each of His children. So what is your relationship to the church as a Christian? Well, first, you are part of the fellowship of God. Second, you are part of the people of God. Thirdly, you are part of the family of God. So let me leave you with a question. Are you a member of the church of God? Now, there are two answers to this question. And I'll show you what they are next week.